I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. This year, the venture capital firm SR1 closed a $600 million fund, its second since spinning out from the pharmaceutical giant GSK. Despite the difficult investment landscape today for biotechs, it's a reminder that significant capital is available to be deployed. We spoke to Simeon George, CEO and managing partner for SR1, about the firm's investment approach, how the current landscape is causing venture capitalists and therapeutics developers to think differently, and what advice he'd offer entrepreneurs seeking to raise money today. Simeon, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity, Danny. We're going to talk about SR1, the current venture capital landscape for the life sciences, and SR1's $600 million fund that the firm raised at the end of March. Perhaps we can begin with a little history. SR1 spent most of its life as the venture arm of GSK. What led to the decision in 2020 to spin it out as a freestanding venture capital firm? Yeah, thanks. And yeah, great, great way. I guess the SR1 origin story. So as, as you correctly pointed out, SR1 was set up in the mid-1980s as the corporate venture arm of GlaxoSmithKline, and it had an amazing run for 35 years, essentially investing off of the balance sheet of GSK, really with a focus on financial return first and foremost. It was never a, uh, you know, uh, a, an extension of a business development or an R&D strategy. And so you know, what that allowed myself and my colleagues who had been working there over the last decade or so was a chance to essentially have you know, all of the autonomy and ability to invest in high quality startups in life sciences that we were passionate about uh, and, you know, work with those companies and generate the returns. And at a certain point, you know, towards the tail end of the last decade, you know, myself, my team, we were frankly getting conviction more and more around the opportunity set that we were seeing outside, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about in terms of the the innovation um that was being translated across these uh, incredible startups. Uh, and we were frankly ready to develop our own independent business and frankly be our own startup and control our destiny and broaden out our investor base and really bet on ourselves to be able to take SR1, the foundation, to the next level. And uh, we were fortunate that we had the strong backing and support of GSK who were looking at really the, the landscape and understanding really it was more of a capital allocation decision for them and the ability to be able to be continue to support our business, but not necessarily be the sole provider of capital. Like that also made sense for GSK given their evolving business needs. And so, you know, over the course of a couple of years, uh, which culminated in the spin out in the fall of 2020, we were able to essentially create the new independent fund, raise third party capital, close the first fund of 500 million. And as you noted, Danny, earlier this spring, we raised our second fund at our hard cap of 600 million. And so 
Certainly, we're incredibly grateful for the support of GSK. We have still continue to have strong ties and interactions with them. They've continued to invest in our new funds. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, I'd say it's a win-win situation, which, you know, is not, not that often you can say that. Yeah, I think of GSK as being fairly innovative and, and really leading the industry around ideas like externalization of, of R&D. And, and even though the venture arm's role was primarily or first and foremost a financial return, has the independence from GSK changed what constitutes a potential investment for SR1 or the investment process and decision-making for the firm? Uh, good question. So, you know, um, you know, the reality is a lot of what we were doing at GSK, and as I highlighted, we were essentially independent in terms of the way we sourced, diligenced, made decisions, managed those investments. That has continued now over the last three years in the independent format, right? So there's some, some elements that are truly the same, if you will, but I certainly say to within our team, to entrepreneurs and to our investors, you know, we feel like we're better, like we're the same, but better because frankly, now it's just, you know, it's obviously it's, it's more dynamic. You know, we are accountable now to uh, not just GSK, but, but to a number of investors. We're continuing to have to raise fresh capital. And so there's just this, sort of existential question, which, you know, we can ask ourselves now, which is like, why does SR1 exist? How do we serve the ecosystem, the entrepreneurs, the founders? What is the value proposition? I just feel like it's much crisper and it's a clear sort of uh, value proposition that we have put together that we're now executing on. And so, you know, it, we, as I said, we have the foundation, the heritage, but, you know, candidly, we've taken it to the next level. And, you know, the probably one of the best examples of that would be the way we've built out the team, some of the talent that we've added, in particular entrepreneurs that we've worked with before successfully, who have joined us in various roles to support every aspect of our business, from sourcing to diligence to investment management. And those, frankly, would not have been people that we could have recruited uh, while part of GSK. You know, they include people like Jake Bauer, who was most recently chief business officer at Myocardia, uh, Rod Gernovac, co-founder and CEO of CRISPR Therapeutics through the IPO, um, Jake Nunn, who was a seasoned public market investor at NEA and MPM, um, who joined us to focus on late stage investing. So just a handful of, you know, those are just a few that I've named, but that capability we didn't have when we were part of GSK. And so definitely incredibly proud of what we did while at GSK. Um, but now, frankly, I, I just think we're better at, at our role. People, uh, I suspect, think of pharma venture arms as a way for pharmaceutical companies to get visibility into biotech and, and early innovation. Uh, the reverse, I imagine, is also true that that your relationship gave you good insight into the thinking of pharmaceutical companies. And given that there are two essential ways for uh, a venture capital exit, the public market or being acquired by a, a pharma company, did you get any insights into the thinking of big pharma with regards to them as potential buyers? What did you learn from working closely with GSK in that regard? Yeah, I mean, certainly at SR1, we have benefited from the close interactions and ties to GSK. And that happened while we were part of GSK, and it continues to this date. So we do have essentially an ongoing dialogue relationship 
within R&D, whether it's senior stakeholders all the way through bench scientists, as well as within business development, corporate development. And it is, it's frankly, an invaluable resource. We've, we believe it's an edge that we have, uh, just given the access, the ability to talk to people that have generally, within an organization of, you know, I think it's 10,000 plus minus R&D scientists, there's usually an expert on whatever it is we're working on, right, or understands the formulation question we might have or how we're thinking about uh, you know, the clinical development for a specific indication or what would the BD or corporate development side like to see as you think about, you know, a package around which you could partner or, or a potential acquisition. So those inputs are tremendously valuable. They have continued, as I say, we still have that dialogue with GSK. Uh, I will also add now that we've added another large pharma company as a, as a major investor in our fund, a U.S. pharma company. And so that again, adds another dimension to the sort of insight that we can get. Because I think, Danny, your point is well taken that, you know, ultimately the home of a lot of these assets, if not companies, sits with the larger players. And so the more interaction we can have, the more we can engage them, uh, keep them abreast of what our companies are doing, get their feedback, you know, the better off, you know, uh, we will be in terms of being able to ultimately hopefully bring important medicines to patients, right? Which is, again, the the name of the game in, in our business. We've touched on your new $600 million fund. This is the second, as you said, since spinning out from GSK. We've been through a few difficult years for biotech. What was your experience raising this fund compared to the previous one? Um, yeah, I mean, inter- you know, both interesting for diff- maybe slightly different reasons. I mean, again, so, and, you know, as we discussed, the first time we set about raising a fund was in 2020, which again, as, as you will recall, we launched sort of the formal process in March of 2020, right when the world went into lockdown. Um, and so for having never spoken to an investor in LP to then have to like figure out how to connect with people via Zoom or, you know, a phone call, obviously very different setup than I guess what normally people had been doing to that point. So there were specific challenges around that moment in time, just given the, obviously just what was happening uh, with uh, with COVID and the pandemic. Um, and, you know, again, candidly, I guess we didn't know, we didn't know in, in terms of how fundraising would go. And, you know, ultimately we had a very strong track record. We had the support of GSK. We had what I thought was a, a strong story. And so, you know, we went out there naively and we believed that we could do it. And, you know, fortunately we were able to execute and, and spin out and raise the capital uh, about six months later. Um, you know, for the second fund, uh, again, as you say, the markets certainly have changed, but you know, frankly, we had continued to show, if you will, sort of proof of concept around our business model. We'd continued to show that we could source interesting deals, uh, we could underwrite them, we could lead them, uh, and then, frankly, we had benefited from some meaningful exits that had taken place over the last, you know, eighteen months within our portfolio. And so, to name, you know, we had, uh, you know, probably one of the best years ever, which is ironic given how challenging last year was, but we had uh, the, the M&A sales of Turning Point to Bristol-Myers, Miro Bio to Gilead, um, and then we had the, the listing of our Celix and then the large partnership with Gilead at the end of the year. Um, and then we sold, an, uh, at the end of the year, we sold the Nimbus Tick 2 asset to, uh, to Takeda. And so I think that that total transaction 
size was, you know, I think close to $12 billion, if I'm not mistaken, not including the Arcelix deal. So that level of transaction value in obviously a very challenging backdrop to be able to sort of have that, you know, as the momentum that can help to um, jumpstart the fundraise, I think was important. Um, and I think, you know, people were in our investors, our existing investors were excited enough to continue to invest in the new fund. Um, and, you know, we scaled GSK's position down, which was something both sides wanted to do. But we were fortunate that we could attract some new large investors and the majority of our existing Fund One investors upped up their contributions. And so we ended up in this really fortunate position where we actually were able to go to our hard cap target of $600 million. What constitutes an investment for SR1? What distinguishes a company in which you'll invest from one that you choose to pass on? Um, you know, Danny, there isn't necessarily like a, a formula. I wish it was, I wish it was that easy. You know, I'd say there's obviously there's just a level of um, pattern recognition that we have and a process that we run in terms of the diligence that we're going to do to be able to, you know, assess and, you know, ultimately develop a view and have conviction around our ability to, to want to continue to pursue and invest in the company. And, you know, the things that we look at again, um, you know, are going to include, of course, you know, it's sort of the, the value proposition of, you know, we are certainly product focused. And so regardless of how early the opportunity is, whether it's company creation or um, later stage, we're thinking about ultimately where is the medicine and how do we think about that product, the importance of that product, the differentiation of that product, why, you know, sort of asking the questions, like, why would a physician prescribe this? Why would an insurer pay for this? Why would a pharma company want to potentially acquire this? Why would later stage investors want to keep investing in it? So sort of trying to assess sort of some of those fundamentals, I think, is important. Uh, there's a team piece, you know, what are the capabilities around the table, like our ability to assess, can you know, can the team execute? Or what are the gaps? How can we, you know, can we address those Um what are the milestones upcoming? How much capital do you need to raise? Um, so those are some of the features, right? So you sort of put those together and, you know, you develop an intuition around the deals you want to prioritize. You know, listen, and ultimately this is a very incredibly humbling game. And so certainly don't expect to be right on uh, on, on most of these decisions. You know, we just hope that we are thorough and thoughtful and use a similar process and ultimately make the best decision, decisions we can based on the you know, information we have, you know, and, and sometimes it is limited, right? So that's probably the, the way I would describe it. At what stages will, would you invest? Yeah, I mean, for us, we're actually quite flexible. You know, we, so we're a transatlantic firm. So we're looking at investments and in startups from US to Europe. We have, you know, team that's based between San Francisco and London. Um, and we are doing everything from company creation with our venture partners all the way through late stage investing, you know, I mentioned Jake Nunn, who's joined us looking at even public companies, right? So we are flexible. We really look at the opportunity and sort of make a determination in terms of our level of uh, conviction around whether or not to invest. And the interest in public company is, is that a result of the big sell-off we've seen in these stocks or was that always part of the, the mix? Uh, you know, it's, it's a combination, right? And we certainly, we had had a number of companies in our portfolio that had gone public, right? So we were essentially managing public positions. And so we became more comfortable with, uh, you know, thinking about those positions, how to size up, down, et cetera. 
And then, as you noted again, Denny, like there has been a market sell-off. We do believe that there are interesting assets sitting at potentially uh, dislocated valuations. And if you do the fundamental analysis, you know, same analysis that we do on the private side, we can apply on the public side. Um, and then lastly, again, as, as I'm sure you're aware, a lot of companies went public over the last few years that were still, frankly, pretty early in their own um, development trajectories, right? So we're still essentially looking at the same opportunity set. It's just that now there's just a number of those companies that are still um, in development, maybe not even have reached POC, certainly haven't brought a product to market. And so we're using, again, the same sort of intuition, judgment, capabilities to assess those sorts of assets uh, and then making a determination around whether we want to invest or not. Given that mix, how many investments would you expect to make in a $600 million fund? Uh, so we expect to make up uh, around 20 investments out of the fund. Uh, and again, it'll be across these different buckets that I described. Company creation driven by our primarily our venture partners starting companies in Europe actually probably is where the natural proclivity is just given that's where the company creators on our team are based. Uh, the early stage venture bucket, sort of the second bucket, again, like getting in, leading and sourcing Series A investments, those probably make up maybe half or more of the 20 or so deals, I would imagine. And then some of the later stage uh, deals, you know, um, uh, when you've really focusing in on a product and the, the development of that product towards EOC or potentially uh, a commercialization. We were through this period where, we saw preclinical companies going public. I think the, the term that people would use was valuations getting a little frothy. Uh, what have you seen happen to valuations now? And has there been some kind of a, a reset? And do investors have more leverage at the negotiating table these days? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so certainly, you know, on the public side, it's been, you know, quite abrupt as well as, you know, frankly, pretty clear, right? The sort of uh, the sell-off that we've seen and I don't know, relative to the highs on, for example, like a, uh, one of the indexes, whether it's XBI or, or NASDAQ, you certainly the you know, uh, on a, uh, over the last couple of years, you know, we're down 50, 60, 70%, depending on sort of how you look at it. So that clearly has happened. We just talked a little bit about the public strategy. I think on the private side, it is, it's certainly situational, you know, so company creation early stage, there hasn't really been that much change, if I'm honest, because again, generally those valuations are within a range, right? Because not much money has been raised. Obviously, these are, if, you know, if it's company creation, these are going to be early stage endeavors. And so you're sort of within a range that I don't think has changed much over uh, the last few years. Maybe there's more thought around how much capital to raise, what's the next inflection point, all of those things. But I think the parameters around those deals are largely driven by quality of science, founders, and there's still scarcity around some of those capabilities. Um, in that middle bucket, you know, the early venture rounds, Series A, B rounds, those rounds, um, I mean, again, like there are, there are situations in which, you know, teams with track records, um, you know, that investors feel comfortable with, with a, an asset or a technology or maybe even a hunting license, you know, those, those teams can still garner, you know, I'd say same level of interest and expectations around valuation is probably what we saw over the last couple of years. I mean, I'll give you an example. Avenzo is a company that we have uh, invested in, one of the, the founding investors, and this is essentially backing the team that was successful at Turning Point. So Athena, 
uh, and Mohammed, the CEO and the CMO, started a new company uh, to identify uh, and and bring in cancer assets. Right, taking advantage of their deep expertise um, in in developing medicines and the success they had at Turning Point. So, you know that that team that those entrepreneurs, like they're going to be able to command a premium in any marketplace, and certainly they did so uh, with this most recent company. Um, probably, you know, where that, the, if you're going to see pressure, it's going to be on the later private rounds, um, where again, as you say, you know, there was a market that would allow companies even pre-clinical or certainly pre-proof of concept to get access to public markets, crossover investors, you know, lower cost of capital that has certainly tightened up now. Right. And so there should be pressure on those rounds. And, you know, again, there's going to be a category of halves. And have-nots, you know, I think the haves are, again, you've got the team piece, you've got probably the orientation on a product that people can get excited about, and investors are still, you know, active and, like us, have raised quite a bit of money. And so, you know, deals are still getting done on, on reasonable terms and maybe even on terms that are, you know, step up to to where their last round was done. And then in the have-not category, those are generally going to be companies that probably raised you know, they raise at higher valuations. They haven't necessarily hit the milestones. There isn't the product orientation or they haven't yet proven out, like they haven't sort of provided enough data to convince new investors of the product itself. And so when those companies are raising capital, I think you're going to see down rounds and, you know, what they look like. I don't know if they're going to be in the range of where maybe the public markets have dropped, but, you know, you you can should expect there are going to be haircuts of, 20, 30, 50% relative to the last round. And that's that's probably something that, you know, we're seeing and we'll see more of probably in the months to come. At the same time, if you're investing in an earlier stage company, you find yourself holding back funds to be able to help carry the company down the road? Uh, you know, listen, we, we probably are, are quite scrupulous around this, to, you know, in any market, we're really thinking about reserves and how much capital we will be required following this initial capital that we're providing. Uh, and if anything, maybe, you know, you'd say maybe there's an extra round now required because again, XYZ company isn't likely going public, maybe at the same time frame that you were expecting if, you know, if this was like 2021 or what have you. So, you know, we're, we're definitely being thoughtful about that. You've got to be thoughtful about, the syndication efforts, the quality of the groups around you, and more importantly, the alignment of sort of the intent and how the other groups are thinking about reserves and you know, holding back capital, all of those things. So those discussions are happening, uh, I'd say, with you know, with regularity. There was a time I think companies would boast about their shots on goal. We've seen a large number of companies take steps to cut programs to slash their burn rates and extend their runways. What advice do you give portfolio companies today in terms of balancing the number of programs they pursue against advancing toward revenues or at least expanding value inflection points? Yeah, I mean, listen, so listen, I'd say that, you know, the job of an entrepreneur, um, you know, leadership team, boards, investors in these early stage companies now looks very different than it did a couple of years ago, right? Because of, again, the constraints or the headwinds that we face. And so I think it, it the, the responsibilities on, on us, like myself as a board member, CEOs of these companies to frankly have various scenarios planned out, 
you know, starting with a pretty clear understanding of what the value proposition is for the business. Fundamentally, what is going to drive value here? Uh, and, you know, whether it's a product or multiple products, like being clear around those value drivers, I think are pretty important. And then assessing how much capital you have on hand, how much capital will you require to get to the next proof points, ability to raise the capital, how much are you you know able to bring in in the subsequent round. And based on that, you're triaging, you're deciding, okay, I'm going to have to make some choices here, some decisions around, again, use of proceeds, resource allocation, all of those things. You know, there's discussions probably that should be happening around partnering or other ways to extend runway, right? So this is frankly the job of these boards and these entrepreneurs and management team now is to do the hard work of of actually, you know, building these companies, right? And so I started in 2007, 2008, you know, on the back of the GFC. And so those are the same skills and experiences that we went through over those years, those really barren years, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, frankly, right? So it's going back to basics and ultimately it's thinking about value creation, bringing important new medicines through to patients and being clear around how you can do that effectively and efficiently. And, you know, the companies that can sort of navigate through this challenging period that can have optionality and can execute, they're going to be fine. And the ones that can't, frankly, they don't deserve to, to continue to uh, exist, at least in the way or shape that they do currently, right? Like that's, that's the natural evolution of the startup world. Are you doing anything like using milestone-based tranches to ensure companies are delivering on their promises? Um, so we've always, you know, listen, I think milestone-based tranches is just a great way to hold everyone accountable, right? Just to make sure that there's certain key uh, value inflection points that companies are, are able to achieve. And if they do, it unlocks more capital, more value to be created. So that's something we've thought about, you know, frankly, since the time I've been investing. And it is, it's situational, it's case by case. Sometimes it makes sense to do that. Sometimes there isn't really sort of an interim proof point. And so, you know, we will use it when it makes sense. Um, but I wouldn't say necessarily, at least for me, the thinking has changed, you know, whether it was last year or this year. Like, I think you do whatever is is the right way to fund the company. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times these sorts of uh, tranches uh, are useful, a useful tool to keep us all honest. SR1 talks about closing major gaps in therapeutic options across diseases. What do you mean by that? Are there, are there some good examples you could point to in terms of investments SR1 has made? Yeah, I mean, listen, that's the hallmark of SR1's investments, right? So I trained as a physician, so I start first and foremost with, you know, this, this again, like aspirational notion of how do we rewrite the medical textbooks. And so I've been fortunate and privileged enough to work on some of these, you know, uh, crazy science fiction ideas that have now turned into potentially medicines that are doing exactly that. And, you know, like a, probably the one that is um, near to my heart is timely is CRISPR Therapeutics, where we led the Series A investment in the company. Uh, as you're probably aware, the, the lead program there, you know, is uh, a therapy for sickle cell and for beta thalassemia, that is now being reviewed by the FDA and, you know, potentially has a, uh, a product that will be coming to market over the coming months. And just to think about having a therapy that potentially could be curative, that could allow patients that were suffering from these terrible diseases um, to have something now that can, you know, uh, potentially really impact their lives like that. That's, you know, ultimately that's exactly what we are aspiring to. And that, you know, that example continues to really um, inspire me. And we've had, again, fortunately, we've had number a number of those sorts of instances, whether it's 
in uh, cancer, autoimmune disease, um, you know, um, rare diseases, genetic diseases, like there's head to toe, there's examples, at least which we're working towards. And again, that sets the mission for SR1. SR1 not only provides financial support, but what it describes is direct operational support. What does that include? Does that factor into the companies in which you'll invest? Do you, you look for management teams that will embrace that direct operational support from a venture investor? Yeah, I mean, so we're very proud of this um, this effort now, right? And I think I alluded to earlier in terms of the new team and talent that we've brought on board. So I'll give you two examples. So Chris Chai has joined us over the last couple of years, and I had the good fortune of working with Chris at Principia Biopharma, where he was the chief financial officer. Before that, he'd been CFO of two other companies. In all three companies, including Principia's case, taken the company public, sold the company, and essentially had developed over the last 10, 15 years really an incredible experience, network, understanding of capital raising, how to build the finance function within the startups, how to prepare for going public, how to build your IPO book, how to integrate uh, with the public market investors. So that, that quality of experience now resides within our team and is accessible across the portfolio, right? And it is invaluable. Like we don't need to, um, frankly, push this on any of our portfolio companies. They are, you know, extremely interested in being able to talk to Chris, spend time with him, have him involved in, for example, recruiting for their finance function, the CFO, VP finance, helping them think through how do you build, you know, your your book of investors in a, in a new round that's coming together, um, you know, how do you think about the audit as you're preparing for an IPO? So it's just incredible to have Chris on the team to be able to do this. And I can tell you on more than one occasion, our portfolio companies have tried to either hire Chris into the company or to see whether he could become separate advisor or potentially a board member into the company, right? So we know this is working incredibly well. Um, and then on the other side, so if you think of Chris as like our in-house chief financial officer, we have Iqbal Mufti, who is our in-house chief business officer. Um, what I mean by that is, so Iqbal joined us last year, last summer, uh, after having spent over 20 years in pharma. And, and with Roche, he was in various roles, business development, corporate development, uh, commercial, um, leading a product um, uh, as it came to market. And so that experience is invaluable because it allows us to be able to have him spend time with our entrepreneurs, interface between them and potentially the strategic uh, partners or groups that are starting to want to wanna understand what the company is doing. There's a messaging piece. There's a networking piece. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just invaluable to have him work across sort of the breadth of our portfolio. Uh, and then finally, he's also looking at assets to potentially um, spin out from pharma and either put into an existing company or into one of our portfolio companies. And so, you know, those two skills, like that operational capability that we have, you know, I, I, I am, you know, really uh, thrilled to have it. It is one of the key value add features of SR1. And as I said, our portfolio companies uh, are really excited to have you know, access to Iqbal and Chris and the other ways that we support them that go beyond just the access to the capital. And what role does management play in your decision making? Is this an essential part of the analysis? Is this something you just see as, you know, as the company grows to a, a new stage that can be replaced? 
I mean, it's, so it, again, it depends on stage and it depends on, you know, sort of what, uh, what we're solving for, right? So again, like I think management certainly as the company is, is maturing becomes more and more important, right? So an early stage seed stage project that we're starting out of academia, generally we can use one of our venture partners like Elliot Charles or Rodger Novak, who both have been successful serial entrepreneurs, um, you know, to be able to essentially strengthen management teams or be the management team as we're starting a company, right? Making the first scientific hires, putting a business plan together. Uh, and so that's an important capability that we can we can bring to bear at that stage. So at that point, like we don't necessarily say there has to be a management team. But, you know, as a company is evolving, as you're moving programs forward, as you're getting to series A, series B, certainly it makes sense to build out the management team. And if you're looking at deals in that arena, you want to have confidence around the team's ability to execute, to raise capital, to hire talent, to retain talent, uh, to be strategic, all of those things, right? So that becomes important. And if there are gaps there, then, you know, it's probably a case of sort of understanding how can we fill those gaps? Can we, you know, hire folks from the outside? Is there someone on the SR1 team that can play maybe an interim role? And as long as there's, you know, alignment between the founders, the, you know, whatever the team component looks like at that point in time and the existing board around sort of how we assess that sort of management capability, then I think we're, you know, we're, we would be comfortable investing. So, you know, that's the way I would describe it. Like ultimately you need a management team, but we also recognize for the early stage endeavors, it's not always built out from day one. I'm wondering if you can take one or two examples from your portfolio and just Walk us through the investment decision-making process and, and what was kind of the tipping point for choosing to, to invest in a company. Yeah, I'll give you, uh, let's see, I'll give you an example. Um, ARS um, is, is an interesting example. So um, we had gotten to know, actually, maybe I'll do design and ARS as to uh, counterweight. So des- I'll start with design, actually. Um, so Design Therapeutics is a company that we led the Series A investment in in the spring of 2020. And really, it, it has all the hallmarks, you know, of, of an SR1 deal. It has um, exciting science, like truly innovative science, going after genetic bases for disease using a, a more traditional small molecule format, uh, which immediately is already something that's different because most of the times when we think about genetic diseases, we think about gene therapy, we think about cell therapy, we think about CRISPR. And so this, the idea of using a small molecule format to be able to go after genetic basis or drivers of disease is interesting. Um, and so there was interesting science. There was an outstanding entrepreneur, someone who had been you know, serial entrepreneur, incredibly successful in uh, Pratik Shah, who was formerly CEO of Auspex and executive chairman of Synthrix. So he'd had, you know, two multi-billion dollar exits, a medicine in Auspex's case that has been brought to market. And so he was the executive chair of design. And so it was it's like perfect storm of innovative science, platform technology, incredible found, uh, founder and an entrepreneur, an ability to really have a efficient path towards taking multiple programs from research into preclinical testing, into potentially clinical testing. Um, and over the last few years, the company has ex- executed essentially to a T, you know, they've been able to advance their programs, their lead program is in the clinic for Friedrich's ataxia. They have a second program targeting a rare uh, corneal disease that has a genetic basis behind it. They have a rich pipeline behind that. 
and they've raised capital on the private markets and on the public markets. And they're well-funded for the next number of years to be able to really test out the, the scientific thesis, right? So that's, that's like a hallmark early stage uh, SR1 deal. Um, on the flip side, ARS is a company that actually we learned about, I learned about through Pratik. So Pratik is also involved at ARS. He is the executive chairman there. Uh, and the company is developing a novel format for epinephrine. So this is essentially going to compete with the EpiPen for severe allergy. And essentially it's an intranasal version to deliver epinephrine. So, you know, the special sauce, if you will, is in the formulation of epinephrine and the ability to deliver it intranasally versus having to, you know, do the, the violent action of like stabbing yourself with an EpiPen. Uh, we invested, we led the last private round right when the company was about to go into late stage development. Uh, so we led that private round and subsequent to that now, the company has completed all of its clinical development, um, has been now going back and forth with the FDA, recently cleared an ADCOM, and there's an upcoming PADUFA date. And so again, single asset, we believe serving an unmet need in the, in the treatment landscape and paradigm for severe allergy um, and again, like line of sight towards productization of this asset. And so between design and ARS, you can see like sort of the end to end of what SR1 can invest in. And again, as I mentioned, an incredible founder involved in both of them. I imagine you see a hundred company or more for, for each one that you actually invest in. What's the major reason that you choose not to invest in a company? Uh, you know, it's again, like I wouldn't say there's necessarily one reason for uh, for why we we don't invest. Again, I think I've covered sort of the different buckets in terms of what we look for, you know, and ultimately, as you say, we're seeing so many companies, right? And it is a humbling job, right? You're meeting incredible founders, entrepreneurs that are all passionate about what they're doing. And so we have to make an assessment, right? Frankly, you know, it starts with like, how moved are we? How motivated are we to spend time on that particular idea startup and so you know i really believe in this idea of empowering the team to be able to follow their their voice their passions what they think is exciting what are they drawn to uh and then doing the work and you know working through the process and sort of triangulating on you know the uh, the investment thesis and gaining conviction ultimately it comes down to conviction around is this an investment that we believe has the potential to, you know, to generate outsized returns. And we do that by having conviction around, it does, is there a potential for, for out of this startup to emerge a really important, meaningful product that is going to impact patients' lives and, and really make a difference in the way that we think about treatment or, or potentially cure of a disease. Is there any advice you'd offer entrepreneurs looking to raise money in the current environment on what they could do to break through the noise and capture the intention of investors like yourself? I mean, listen, as I said, it's, you know, being an entrepreneur right now, it's very different than potentially being an entrepreneur a couple of years ago, right? So you have to, you have to have passion and belief in what you're doing, um, have to be self-aware and sort of take the feedback and think about, you know, the positioning of your story, of your product, of your technology, so that you're sort of, you know, assessing, where the potential holes may be and how you're going to try and address them. Um, you know, you've got to be, you know, sort of, as you say, stand out from the crowd. You have to be, you know, somewhat sort of inspirational. You have to sort of combine inspiration with perspiration, do the hard work. And, you know, I went through this fundraising process myself 
as, as we talked about at SR1. And, you know, you have to talk to a lot of investors. You have, you know, you need some degree of good fortune and right place, right time with an investor. So you have to just keep going and hustling. Um, and, you know, like I, I just think now there's all of the, you know, there's incredible science. We know that there are companies that are going to emerge that get funded during this period that are going to become the next wave of enduring companies that are going to be standout companies, right? So I think back to, as I said, when I started, the companies that we invested in eight, nine, 10, you know, of this, of this century, you know, some of the best deals, the most resilient teams emerged from that period to create significant value through the products that they brought forward, right? So, you know, you have to remain optimistic, believe in what you're doing and keep going. Before we go, I, I just wanted to ask you one last question. You know, we, we started this year, it, it, it seems like ages ago now, but earlier this year we had the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which played an essential role in the life of young life science companies. In retrospect now, is there any lasting effect or changes you see as a result of that? Mm. I mean, as you say, that was feels like a long time ago now. You know, and it was certainly a challenging few days as, as that process uh, unfolded. And, you know, obviously the FDIC came in on that Sunday evening. And I'd say, listen, first and foremost, you know, again, you can only control what you can control, either SR1 or at the portfolio company level, right? So I think it really has been like, again, like this renewed focus and emphasis on doing everything that we can to support our portfolio companies. And I've talked to you about our access to obviously the fresh capital, the $600 million we've raised the operational capabilities we now have to support the companies to help them think through partnership. How do you raise capital? How do you build your business? And so, you know, I, I am confident that there will continue to be financial institutions, whether it's SVB or others that will have sort of an interest and a mandate to support the, the venture backed ecosystem. And so I think that part, we're not going to be able to control where we sit today. There continues to be pretty good interaction with a handful of players and banks that are, again, potentially, you know, going to play a role here. But for us at our Sarwan, we really focus on the mission of what we do, which is to back, you know, outstanding founders and entrepreneurs that have a vision for bringing these products forward. And we'll do everything that we can, certainly providing the capital, but all the other resources and capabilities that we can to allow those companies to be successful. And that, you know, that goes for today. It went for six months ago. It'll go for you know, for for as long as we are going to continue to do this, which I hope is a very long time. Simeon George, CEO, co-founder and managing partner at SR1 Venture Capital. Simeon, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. It was my pleasure. Appreciate the time and the questions. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.